good evening uh, or good morning as the case may be uh, to all the friends i'm very uh, pleased and honored uh, today to be the the host uh, i see that uh, mr khalid is already uh, online but uh, since i've started i'll go on uh, to, today is the 10th in the series of uh, reading and discussions uh, from uh, the book by uh, Dr. Martin Links, The Book of Certainty. Uh, and uh, we have uh, with us, uh, as usual, Dr. Reza Kazmi to, uh, to take us on. To, uh, today we are going to read from uh, chapter four, uh, The Law of Certainty. I, I now uh, pass on to uh, Dr. Reza to continue. All right, thank you very much, Abdurrahman. Um, yes, we've come to chapter four, and thankfully it's a, it's a short chapter. I say thankfully because we've spent a very long time, and I, I'm guilty of this more than anybody else, um, perhaps expanding too much, going off into too many different directions uh, from this very, very rich text. And now I think it's time to be more focused on the text itself. And it's it's a short chapter, so we should be able to not just have the chapter read by Abdurrahman Adnan, but also we can have some uh, minimal comments from myself and then go into a question and answer session. So if I could ask you, Abdurrahman, to read, it's only two, it's not even two pages, actually. It's, uh, it's one and a half pages. So if you could uh, kindly set the ball rolling and start the reading for us. Chapter four, the law of certainty. Starts with a quotation from the Quran, chapter 2, verse, verses 37 to 38. Then Adam received words from his Lord, who relented towards him. Verily, he is the relenting, the merciful. We said, go fallen hence, all of you together. Yet assuredly will I send unto you a guidance, and whosoever shall follow my guidance, no fear shall come upon them, neither shall they grieve. In considering what the religions teach, it is essential to remember that the outside world is as a reflection of the soul of man, corresponding to it in all its details. This correspondence is sometimes expressed by saying that the world is like a big man, or that man is a little world, a microcosm. It is by reason of the correspondence between these two worlds that sacred utterances, which refer directly to the outside world, the macrocosm, may be interpreted as referring also to the microcosm. In fact, religious teaching continually draws images from the macrocosm. For unlike the true man who sees and understands both worlds, the fallen man can only see the outer world in any distinctness of detail, his own soul being for him as a dark forest. Thus, for example, what the Quran says of the infidels, al-kafirun, may be understood not only as referring to the worst human beings in the outer world, but also as throwing light on the worst elements in the soul of the fallen man, which have their counterparts in the outer infidels. To take another example of correspondence, which bears more directly on what has gone before, one may say that the fountain of immortality which springs from the center of the Garden of Eden, is the counterpart of the eye of certainty in the center of true man's soul. Or rather, that this eye is itself the real fountain of immortality, of which the fountain in Eden 
is as an outward reflection. And so, when it is said that Adam was driven out of the Garden of Eden, the meaning is that man in general had lost the inward paradise of the eye as well as the paradise of the outer world. The state of the outer world does not merely correspond to the general state of men's souls. It also, in a sense, depends on that state, since man himself is the pontiff of the outer world. Thus, the corruption of man must necessarily affect the whole, and the conditions of the age which followed the primordial age were an outward sign that mankind in general no longer possessed the inward paradise. But although today men are so far from the paradise as to be almost beyond the reach of any reminder of it, the men of old were still near enough to be keenly aware of its loss. And indeed, it is no exaggeration to say that most of what the ancients have left behind, uh, most of what the ancients have left behind them is stamped more or less clearly with the consideration of how a man might return to the paradise and become once more the true man. It was for the sake of this return that the law of certainty was given to man by means of the religions. And this is the guidance which is mentioned in the above quotation. Those who seek to follow the path of the return, al-tariqah, are mentioned in the chapter of the events as the foremost, or as-sabiqun. The Quran, chapter 56, verse 10, al-waqi'ah. Of such it is said that there are many among the earlier generations and few among the later generations. Afterwards, there is mention of those of the right, of whom it is said that there are many among the earlier generations and many among the later generations. And this may be taken as a reference to those whose virtue is to remain on the right side of the religious law, in contrast to those of the left who are in revolt against this law. It is owing to the natural tendency of all earthly things towards degeneration that the proportion of those who follow the path is much smaller in later than in earlier times. Thank you very much. Yes, well, that's a nice short chapter, very clear. And uh, I think rather than start to give any comments for myself, I'll begin by asking if there are any questions from the participants. Uh, okay, my question is that uh, the law of certainty here, does it mean uh, divine revelation, which is given to mankind for his guidance or divine inspiration? Does it also um, include uh, you know, intellectual intuitions and things like that, pure intellection? Yes, but it's the first stage. Um, who is speaking, by the way? I don't recognize your voice. Yes, actually, I, I'm participating in this seminar for the first time. Uh, my name is Sayyid Abbas Zilkarnan Nakwi. I'm from Pakistan. All right. Well, welcome. Um, Thank you. Ahlan Masathan. So, uh, at the beginning of the book that we're looking at, um, we are introduced to these three degrees of certainty. And this word law is a little bit, you know, it's, it's an old fashioned word, which simply means the doctrine. Um, uh, but Dr. Lings was uh, was well aware of the nuances, and he chose this word for reasons best known to himself, instead of just saying the doctrine of certainty, the law, uh, the tidings of certainty. And it refers to ilm al-yaqeen, as opposed to the ayn al-yaqeen, as opposed to the truth of certainty, haq al-yaqeen. So at the very beginning of the book, Dr. Lings went through these three degrees, saying that the in the doctrine or the law, the knowledge of certainty, is uh, that doctrine which is itself pertaining to 
that which is absolutely certain, but also it imparts certainty. So it's when you ask the question about whether this is revelation or intuition or so on and so forth, every um, aspect of the knowledge of the absolute that can take the form of doctrinal content, which in, in traditional Arabic discourse, it's referred to those sama'i um, aspects, which are those things that you hear. Um, anything you hear from outside, whether it's hadiths or verses of scripture or doctrine from Sufi masters, whatever it may be, if you hear it and it's coming to you from the outside and you're having news about it, then it falls into the category of the ilm al-yaqeen, the knowledge of certainty. Remembering that in this framework, it's the lowest level of knowledge. It's just knowledge that you hear about. It's data coming to you, but it is coming from either revelation or inspiration or intellectual intuition or whatever may be the source, you are receiving it as data. And then you are required to ascend through these three degrees from hearing about the truth, that which is absolutely certain, to attaining the eye of certainty, which is the the normal, uh, Dr. Ling's in one of the chapters, let me um, see, I think it's, we had it recently, had this beautiful way of, yes, in fact, just the previous chapter, uh, uh, page 19, where the vice regent, the Khalifa and the saint, Wali, are uh, describing the human nature as it was intended by God. So this person who has attained to the eye of the spirit, the eye of the heart, the eye of certainty. Uh, he, he says here on page 18 that um, the one who has attained the eye of certainty is he alone whose heart is lit with this moon, uh, the moon standing for the heart as opposed to the sun from which the, the haqq al-yaqeen emanates. So the moon, the heart, is the sort of normal possession, if you like, of Edenic or primordial man. And that one who has this eye of certainty doesn't just have to hear about the reality of God, but he can actually see the fire. Now, this is going back to the beginning of the book where Dr. Ling said that the law of certainty, L-O-R-E, the doctrine of certainty, is like Moses when he um, hears about the fire then the eye of the certainty is when he sees it, and then the truth of certainty, the haqq al-yaqeen, is when he's completely extinguished in the fire. And that is the, the ultimate uh, realization of the supreme self, the, what uh, René Guénon would call the supreme identity. And here we're talking about tawheed, that which makes absolutely one, the realization of oneness, but not the transcendent exclusive unicity of the principle, but the imminent inclusive reality of the self. So it's what ex expressed in Hinduism, tat tvam asi, that referring to the, in, the transcendent, tvam, you are asi. That transcendent reality is what your true self is. So, just to repeat, this uh, is knowledge that comes to you about God, whether it be from revelation or inspiration or intellectual inspiration or intuition, whatever. Uh, and then the is when the eye of the heart, the third eye, when it begins to open and you can actually have, you have a vision of the, the sun, the supernal sun of which your heart is a reflection, your own heart reflects this, the spirit, and then the final degree, which we'll come to later on in the book, is the haqq al-yaqeen, where the individuality as such is completely extinguished, burnt up in the fire of knowledge. Um, again, to use rather Hindu-sounding terms, uh, we think of the, the idea of nirvana, meaning that which is like something snuffed out, extinguished, and fana in Sufism, you're completely effaced. You have nothing left of your individual empirical self. And 
it's God alone who subsists in baqa ba'd al-fana. So even if the individuality continues to act and to think and to speak, it's now the divine reality that is thinking, speaking, acting through that individual in accordance with probably the most important uh, hadith in terms of the definition of the state of the waliullah, of the, 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 the saint, the friend of God, who in a, in a hadith Qudsi, the divine says that man adali waliyan fa'adhantuhu bil harb, he who opposes one of my friends, I declare war upon him. And then he describes, God describes the, the two degrees of realization, one uh, corresponding to the performance of the outward rights, the obligatory rights, the fara'id, and then the higher degree in relation to the nawafil, the optional rights, the ones of free devotion from yourself that you give to God. And the Sufis understand this to refer to the vikr, which is bighayri hisab, you do it all the time as opposed to the salat, which you do sometimes and not at other times. So this nawafil degree is the higher one. It refers to the dhikr uh, and other total gifts of self to the, to the absolute. And at the end of that description, it says that when I love him, I become, and I love this slave who has given himself to me, come closer to me through nawafil, uh, I become the hearing by which he hears, the sight by which he sees, the hand by which he strikes, and the foot whereupon he walks. So this identification is complete, but the distinction between the empirical individual and the supreme self is, of course, intact on the level of outward existential differentiation, but on the level of inward essential identification, we're talking about the one and only reality, which is that of walaya, as is expressed most beautifully in uh, the Quran, verse 55 of chapter number five. Innama waliyukumullah, truly you only have one wali, that is God. Your wali, that is the divine name, al-wali. Innama waliyukumullah wa rasuluhu waladina amanu. And this means that the walaya as such is one in its essence, rooted in the divine, but coming down, filtering through first the level of the prophetic reality, and then at the level of the believers. And in this category, the those who perform the prayer, who give their arms while in a state of ruku in the bowing position in the prayer. And this refers to Imam Ali, who was in that position when he pointed to his ring uh, to give to a beggar who wanted arms. So Imam Ali represents that category of the true believer who is the embodiment of Walaya. I actually have one more question. So after your uh, response, you know, so this means that until and unless uh, supreme identity is achieved, uh, there will be some trace of means this some kind of a distinction or trace of individuality or relativity, whatever you want to say, or the distinction between the seer and the seen, or the known and the known. This is true. This is this this distinction is completely removed only when the supreme identity is achieved. This is not this is not removed even when you when your eye of when you have eye of certainty. Still, there is there is some some distinction <clears throat> that is involved there is always a distinction even after the supreme identity has been attained because um yeah because dr lings has said um that and ibn arabi and others of course have said before him that um for example ibn arabi says al-abd yabqa al-abd the slave always remains the slave for as long as you are speaking about uh, existence and the individual subsisting, not having died, <coughs> not Sorry. having yet, not having died. If yeah, it it's the 
the fana in question, where there is absolutely no distinction between the seer and the seen, no question of relativity of the individuality imposing upon the exclusive unicity of the absolute principle, that is only attained in the state, the hal of fana, mm. when a halaj can exclaim anal haq. And he's not referring to his individuality. He's in a state or he's poetically referring to the state. And as it were, speaking as if it's a hadith putsi where God is speaking through him. That is exclusively uh, the property of a momentary state for the individual. In the sense that the individual is burnt up in that fire of knowledge. And when, for example, Shankara gives his doctor uh, doctrinal treatises um, he and he says I am the immutable I am this I am that he's speaking about what derives from that point of consciousness which is the reflection of the divine reality within his own heart but the empirical aspect of his consciousness has been completely absorbed extinguished into the absolute so it's what he calls, Shankara makes this distinction between the via vaharika and the paramartika. Via vaharika is the point of view from relativity where distinctions are maintained and paramartika is where there are no distinctions. And part of the, the mystery of the religions is that you don't know when the, it's the, it's the paramartika, when it's the supreme subspecie eternitatis it's called in latin from the point of view of eternity when is that viewpoint being affirmed and when is it the point of view of relativity from the world the human being so even after these great saints the great prophets have attained the truth of certainty the haqqaliyakin they've been burnt in that fire of the supreme reality, even after this state of consciousness, this degree of realization has been attained, when they, as it were, return to their selves, back to normal differentiated consciousness, then they remain always subservient to the absolute in its personal manifestation. They remain subservient, obedient to those above them in the spiritual hierarchy. This is again what Shankara says at the end of his commentary on uh, Godapada's Karikas. He says that I salute this knowledge that transcends me. I salute my guru. And if you ask me, how can I salute something apart from myself when I am the only self? I say to you that this is because I look at him from the relative viewpoint and i owe him all the devotion i can possibly give him so there is always going to be not so much uh, a trace of of egotism but a trace of the ego of the individuality that subsists and this mysterious confluence between the subsistence of the individual as an individual but the baqa the subsistence of god through the individual this mysterious paradox, which is so difficult to uh, encompass by words and by formal thought and by reason and by logic, is given us in the form of an intuition of the incredible, what Ibn Arabi would call the station of Hera, of bewilderment. That how can it be that it's both al-haq and it's other than al-haq? It's both the reality and other than the reality. And this the intuition of how two contradictories can come together um, is expressed beautifully in the Quran in the verse which addresses the Prophet. You did not throw the pebbles. When you threw the pebbles, but God it was who threw. So you see, this is an intimation of this exalted state of supreme identity, that the prophet is still there as a human being. He speaks, he throws, he does this and he does that. But the metaphysical reality is prevailing over, dominating over, penetrating through 
the physical reality of the prophet doing this or doing that. So it's a way of affirming, uh, of first denying the physical plane altogether. You did not throw. This is an appearance. You didn't do it. God did it. But then it says you did not throw when you threw. So it's both a negation and an affirmation of the physical act prior to the higher affirmation of the metaphysical reality subsisting through that physical act and being the reality, the substance of that outward act. So um, anyway, we could talk about this for a bit longer. Now, I've been told by uh, Abdul Ghazar that uh, uh, we need to go back to what Imam Ali said. Um, تزعم أنك جرم صغير ولكن فيك انطواء العالم الأكبر فأنت الكتاب المبين الذي بأحرفه يظهر المضمر I think I wanted to go on to say what Dr. Lings used to remind us of frequently which is um, that the hadith Qudsi that my earth hath not room to contain me my heaven hath not room to contain me, but the heart of my believing servant hath room to contain me. So this is also what, of course, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within you, it's, it's in your heart. But this idea of the whole of the cosmos being present within oneself and being reflected within the soul, as Dr. Ling says, the outside world is as a reflection of the soul of man, corresponding to it in all its details, such that the world is like a big man or that man is a little world, a microcosm. And this is extremely important when we go on to the next page. And Dr. Ling says the state of the outer world does not merely correspond to the general state of men's souls. It also, in a sense, depends on that state since man himself is the pontiff of the outer world. And if you remember, we had that uh, discussion about the corruptio optimi pessima, that the corruption of the best becomes the worst. And so man being the best creation, when he falls from paradise, in the way that we've described, in the, that Dr. Lings has described in the book, describing possibly uh, eons through which this fall takes place in historical terms from thousands to hundreds of thousands of years. Um, this gradual fall from paradise, which is mythologically and dramatically enacted in the narratives in Genesis and in the Quran, um, is, is describing a process that takes a huge amount of time in, in the course of which degeneration takes place. And that because man is the pontifex, he's the pontiff of the outer world, meaning the bridge builder, because he builds the bridge between heaven and earth, when he falls, his fall is not only going to be reflected in the outer world, but his fall will determine the accelerating degeneration of the outer world. So, and this is obviously something that Dr. Lings would have um, affirmed in relation to the contemporary uh, ecological crisis, that what we see happening all around the world, these environmental disasters, um, are nothing other than reflections of a state of soul which we collectively the Adamic community, we human beings, collectively have, have fallen prey to. And because we have fallen prey to this gross materialism and, and viciousness, this greed, this avarice, pride, arrogance. And in fact, on this subject, I would recommend that you read uh, what Dr. Ling says about the seven deadly sins in the chapter of that name. It, it's called The Seven Deadly Sins uh, According to the Symbolism of Number. And it's in his book, Symbol and Archetype. And it's an extraordinary explanation of, of these seven deadly sins as being caricatures or parodies of seven virtues. And they, they correspond to, to the seven planets. And that in itself shows that the way in which the, 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 the macrocosm participates in the microcosmic degeneration 
of those virtues which are represented by the planets in their fullness and their plenitude and which when become in caricatured or inversions of themselves they carry the whole of the cosmos down with them into this whirlpool of, of environmental catastrophe which are nothing other than outward signs of the inward degeneration of our souls so thus the corruption of man must necessarily affect the whole and the conditions of the age which followed the primordial age were an outward sign that mankind in general no longer possessed the inward paradise and i'll just read the rest of this paragraph before opening up to any questions that you may have but although today men are so far from the paradise as to be almost beyond the reach of any reminder of it the men of old were still near enough to be keenly aware of its loss and indeed it is no exaggeration to say that most of what the ancients have left behind them is stamped more or less clearly with the consideration of how a man might return to the paradise and become once more the true man it was for the sake of this return that the law of certainty was given to man by means of the religions and this is the guidance which is mentioned in the above quotation so let's go back to the quotation with which this chapter began so it's adam received words from his lord who relented towards him verily he is the relenting the merciful we said go fallen hence all of you together yet assuredly will i send unto you a guidance and whosoever shall follow my guidance no fear shall come upon them neither shall they grieve so going back to your question um abbas about whether the law of certainty is only the religions in this chapter dr lings is 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 more implicitly saying that that the doctrine of certainty which imparts certainty to you is these words of revelation from adam but in other places uh one can say what we said earlier that as in so far as the doctrine of god comes to you whether it be from revelation or inspiration or intellectual inspiration of uh, intuition of of other people in so far as it comes to you through those filters and you receive it it's it's the doctrine is the level of the doctrine only you have to then do the work to follow the guidance to do exactly what it says here i will send unto you a guidance and whoever shall follow my guidance no fear shall come upon them neither shall they grieve and just one little point before i go open up to questions it's interesting that adam received words from his lord and then when god says to adam to fall from paradise it becomes the plural it's no longer speaking to adam or adam and eve it's not in the singular nor is it in the dual it's in the plural so here is exactly a kind of linguistic um ishara to what dr lings is saying that the story of adam's fall from paradise is the story of a of a gradual degeneration of the whole human race and remember we had that hadith that between the adam that we know and the adam that that fell there are 100,000 adams so this is a story of of an uh, of unimaginable complexity but which our imaginations are given some kind of narrative in order to an inspired narrative a revealed narrative that will awaken in us an understanding of what it means to say that adam fell from paradise and fritjof schuon has said the reason why this story in genesis and then in the quran was never doubted by um was never questioned by um countless generations of believers is because they it, it, the story resonated with the very uh principle of the fall and of the redemption and of the revelation that is taking place every single day it's reenacted in every single day in the deepest point of consciousness in your heart and so it reminds you of what you part of you because if if you remember the whole alam al akbar is contained within you then something of you was there when this dramatic fall took place and something of you is aware of it happening over eons of time 
and something you is, is aware that you need to reach out and accept the guidance that's coming to you and to follow that guidance in order to be redeemed. So it awakens a kind of primordial memory, uh, not a kind of empirical memory, but an intuition in the depths of one's heart that, that one was there, one has done that oneself, one has reached out for that fruit. All of it was is something that is both imaginal and cosmological and metaphysical and therefore mystically tasted by each and every soul when you hear this uh, revealed uh, retelling of the story of what happened to the creation uh, of Adam over time. So I'll stop there for now and um, just open up to any questions that there may be. Yeah, it's uh, Nikhil Samant and uh, greetings from India. So in this uh, seminar, uh, first half of the seminar, uh, thank you for expounding uh, with such a luminous brevity the doctrine of Advaita, if I Islamic Advaita, if I may put it this way. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I have two questions basically. Uh, the first question being, uh, you better know than me the hadiths. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, it was received by Abu Huraira if I'm not wrong, that I received two sets of truth. So the first uh, truth uh, he did not reveal to the to, uh, to the other uh, co-religionists. But the right. second truth about the Sharia, he did reveal it. So uh, right. was it uh, referring to the quote-unquote Advaita? Uh, did the Prophet Muhammad upon him be peace and blessings? Did he teach Advaita to his selected disciples like Imam Ali or Salman and so on. This is my mm. first question. Well, right. Well, actually, because we're, we're, I've just noticed that we're running very much out of time, perhaps we'll just yeah. take this one question and then we'll leave the other one sure. for next time. Um, you see, it, it's very, in terms of, of um, terminology, we have to be very careful. Um, I laughed when you talked about Islamic Vedanta um, because in a way, you know, I can see what you mean, but we have to be very careful not to mix up too much the, the phraseology of, uh, of the different traditions. Um, if you say simply in Islamic terms, in Sufi terms, that what the Prophet taught his intimate disciples, those who are qualified to receive the full teaching. And if those those full teachings are things that Dr. Lings is referring to here as Anna Arab Bila Ain, I am the Arab without the letter Ain, therefore I am the Rab. This is a this is what you might call an Advaita teaching, non-duality. But it muddies the waters a little bit unless you are very careful in uh, maintaining the distinctive flavor of Advaita Vedanta as opposed to the distinctive flavor of quintessential Tasawwuf. In their essence, they're saying the same thing, where it's the Abdramot Wahtata Wujud, if you like, you could say that Advaita, not two, is identical to Wahtata Wujud, the oneness of being. Uh, and this is very typically Islamic, because in Islam you are affirming. You say, la ilaha illallah. You affirm, it's cataphatic, to use the Greek term. Whereas Advaita is apophatic, it negates. So that uh, it's as if you say that Advaita is all about negating, as Shankara would say, the ego is the non-self. It doesn't exist. It's an illusion. and the ego is as unconnected, he says, to the true Atman. So the Jivatman is as unconnected to the Paramatman as the arm is to the body. And this sounds strange at first, but what he then goes on to say is if you cut off your arm and throw it away, does your ego stop being your ego? Does yourself, your identity as a particular individual, stop being what it is? No. The cutting off of an, an arm 
even if it's terrible and drastic and painful, it doesn't stop you being you. It doesn't take away any intrinsic property of your ego. In exactly the same way, when you cut off your ego and throw it away, <laughs> burn it up in the fire of knowledge, it has absolutely no impact on the identity of the self, capital S. So this kind of Advaita approach of negating the illusion of the, of the self is, if you like, the unique flavor of Advaita. And if we simply say that Muslim uh, affirmations of the esoteric reality of the Supreme Self or of Watatul Wujud is nothing other than Advaita in Islamic form, it's, it runs the risk of actually distorting the particular taste of the fruit of the Islamic revelation, where in the Islamic revelation, you have a deliberate disguising of the, these truths that, as Jesus says, that you do not give pearls to the swine. You do not feed what is sacred to the dogs. But at the same time, you don't hide your light under a bushel. So in the Abrahamic traditions, you have this play of veiling and revealing and not this kind of overt uh, expression of metaphysical doctrine, which has its own flavor, its own requirements, its own tapas, which is one pointed concentration of the mind and the dispensing of all other rights when you become a sannyasin. So you have all sorts of conditions and, uh, as I say, flavors, tastes, of spiritual requirements for attaining the supreme truth in the different traditions. And what we should simply say is that the what Shuan has said, that in Sufism there is a, a quintessential esotericism, which is founded on the shahada, the essential elements of the faith, la ilaha illallah, Muhammadun Rasulullah. And then you have average Sufism and, and all these other things which are there to make more assimilable or sometimes to disguise those truths which are too exalted. Too, I, I'm thinking now also of a very important statement by Imam Ali that was repeated by Imam Jafar al-Sadiq, um, that if Abu Dharr al-Ghifari knew what was uh, in the heart of Salman al-Farisi, he would kill him. And these two were known as among the greatest followers of Ali. Even in the lifetime of the Prophet, they were referred to as the Shi'at Ali, the followers of Ali, because um, the, uh, um, uh, when the Surah Al-Bayyina was revealed, and it refers at the end to those who are the best of creatures, inna ladin amanu wa'amilu salihati ula'ika hum khayrul bariyya. And they say, well, who are these? You know, those who believe and who act virtuously, they are the greatest of the creatures of God. Their reward is with their Lord, gardens of Eden underneath which rivers flow. They divide therein forever. God is pleased with them and they are pleased with him. So the, compa the companion said, who are these best of creatures? And according to Sunni sources and Shia, the prophet gave a single answer, which was, they are Ali wa Shi'atuhu, Ali and his Shia. And so in the lifetime of the prophet, there was a group who was very attached to Imam Ali, knowing that if he is the Medina of Ilm, we should just learn from him. We can't always be at the feet of the Prophet, but let's go to the gate of the city of knowledge when the Prophet said, Ana Madina babuha. I am the city of knowledge and Ali is its gate. So whoever wishes knowledge, let him come to the gate. So these, these are known as four, the, the four pillars of early Shiism were called as such. Um, and that, uh, Abu Dhar al-Fari, Salman al-Farsi, um, Miqdad bin Amr, and uh, I forget the fourth now. Um, these are the four pillars of the, the Shia, of those who are known as being particularly attached to Ali in his lifetime. So uh, when Ali says this about the two people who were closest to him, that if Abu Dhar knew what was in the heart of Salman al-Farsi, he would kill him. It's because Abu Dhar's way of understanding the truth of la ilaha illallah 
was so totally different from Salman al-Fars. He would kill me. He said, this is shirk. This is kufr. You're divinizing yourself. You're saying that you are somehow God. He wouldn't understand all of these metaphysical distinctions that Dr. Lings is teaching us about through this in the Book of Certainty, about how the abd remains the abd, even in the moment of unitive realization, when he can cry out in a poetic flight of fancy through a rhetorical expression of this exalted spiritual state of absolute unity, this ocean of oneness that he is now completely submerged in. His drop is no longer a drop, it's now the ocean. And he cries out, An al you know, obviously, what are they going to do to him? Crucify him. So, you know, he's calling himself God, the worst of all crimes. It's the pharaonic crime of arrogance and pride and self-divinization, the shirk of the worst order, not just that you're worshipping some idol out there, but you're worshipping yourself and telling other people to worship you implicitly. So what do you do with that person? What Abu Dhar would do, Abu Dhar would kill Salman al-Farasi if Salman were to go around like Halaj and expressing his inner identity. So this, uh, the question that you've asked, that is, is the problem, and, and actually another thing that just occurred to me is uh, what Sheikh, what uh, Dr. Lings would say, that the prophet would sometimes come into a gathering and say, before he started to speak, he would say, Is there amongst us a stranger? And it's possible that he'd entered a house where there was not much in the way of light and he couldn't see people sitting at the back of the room and just wanted to know from those he could see, are there any people amongst us who would take amiss and not understand what I'm about to tell you about, you know, the secrets of the religion, the inner dimensions that have to be kept esoteric remember that esoteric simply means hidden exoteric means apparent esoteric is what's within and the bath in is the belly it's what you can't see from outside it's what the belly contains or as the vahir is the back the back that is visible and the, the interpreters of this say that it's to do with an animal that you see the back of it, the spine is very visible, but the bottom is, is hidden, it's underneath and that you can't see it. So yes, I would say that, that uh, what Shuan would say, that the, the essence of the esoteric truth is identical, whatever be the outward exoteric religious form by which it's enshrouded. But to say that Sufism is just Islamic, Advaita or Vedanta is not, I don't think it would be appropriate to say that. Uh, thanks. Uh, go fall in hands, all of you together. Yeah. And uh, can I ask uh, what state we are fallen? Are we state of men or we we fallen into the state of uh, mineral? Uh, because uh, in the, Dr. the another Dr. Ling books, um, Dr. Ling's wrote, about Jaruddin Rumi, uh, the great Persian Sufi, speak of pre-human fairyful states and of rebirth from mineral to vegetable, from vegetable to animal, and from animal to man. Are we fallen to, any, uh, to uh, mineral states or uh, man states? Well, in this, uh, this particular verse that Dr. Lings has started the chapter with, um, it's quite clear that we're talking about the degeneration of human beings as human beings going from an angelically articulated humanity such that even the angels have to bow down to the adamic reality because it encompasses everything from the mineral to the divine all of the divine names and qualities are there as well as the lowest mineral which is represented here by clay so the adamic reality already encompasses the totality of creative of the the creative intention of god the entire creative intention of god is encapsulated as imam ali said that the whole alam al-akbar is within you from the lowest minerals to the vegetables to the animals to the human beings to the angels and in that rumi poem that you're referring to he says you know i i died as a mineral and plant became i died from the plant and donned an animal frame i died from the animal became a human being i shall die from the human state and then fly with the angels this is not verbatim by the way it's just you know the gist of it and then i will also die from the angelic state and then who knows what i will become so when by dying did i ever become less 
So what Rumi is referring to in this poem, and I think Chittik has made this point very well, is far from being a kind of evolutionary hypothesis, uh, Rumi is saying that in my humanity, in my creation as a human being, I have within me everything from the mineral to the angel and something more. So even if my fall from Eden, where the angels had to bow down to me as the Khalifatullah, I am the one who represents the divine names and qualities in their totality. Even the angels have to bow down to me. I've fallen from that state to one where I'm actually acting far more like an animal or a mineral or a plant because I'm much more like a, a vegetable in just seeking to reproduce myself or like an animal who seeks to uh, give vent to his lust or to acquire this or to acquire that or be dead like a mineral in relation to God and to have absolutely no receptivity, no life in me that moves like a flower towards the sun. Instead, I'm like a rock that is just immutable. It's solid. It stays in its place. It has no life, no movement. It's like indifferent to the divine reality. So we, all of us in our states of fall, we all manifest different um, accentuations. Some of us are more like vegetables, some of us are more like animals, some of us are more like stones. In a, the Quran says that there are people whose hearts are even harder than stone. So we all have differing degrees of fall, of decadence, of degeneration. And the important point, going back to the Rumi poem and going back to what, what Dr. Ling cites from the Quran, is that whatever be the state into which we have fallen, the most important thing is that we recognize that we have fallen and that we recognize that we have come from a paradise of perfection that is no longer ours and that we are striving for paradise once again in accordance with the words of revelation that have been given to us in terms of our, whatever our religion may be. Each one of us have received something by way of divine guidance. The the hujjah, the argument that God has against us is complete. He's given us guidance. For every ummah, there is a messenger. Each one of us has received it. And we all know, in addition to this messenger that's come after the fall, we all know what God said to us on the day of Alas. Am I not your Lord? And we all say, Bala. We all say, yes, we testify you are our Lord. Then what does God say to us? This is lest you say on the day of judgment, I had no knowledge of this. Read that, you see, even in the law, they say ignorance is no excuse. You each must know the law and therefore abide by it. And each one of us in the depths of our hearts knows that God is our Lord and that at our creation, we testify to this. We give ourselves in devotion to our Lord and then we have to uh, take full cognizance of the moral and spiritual responsibilities that flow from this, even if it's a distant echo of a recognition, of a recollection of that day of our creation. Each one of us in the depths of our being will know, and especially on the day of judgment, we will not be able to say to God, well, I didn't know that you existed. And so, well, you know, this is no excuse. Go back. Remember, we won't be able to, because as soon as we die, and as the prophet said, man mata qad qiyamatuhu, he who dies, his qiyamah has begun. So when we are raised up at the very moment of our death and we're face to face with God, we will know exactly. And this is the final point perhaps I should make about um, the surah entitled the resurrection, the surah al-qiyamah, which begins, la uqusimu bi yawmil qiyamah wa la uqusimu bi nafsil lawama. God swears by the day of the Piyama, the resurrection, and he swears by the soul that is accusing itself, this intermediary soul that we all occupy, but all of us who have not have been sanctified by God. We occupy this intermediary domain where we're accusing ourselves of doing things wrong. We know we're at fault. And we're trying to be better. And so important is that soul, as opposed to the one that is just ordering evil, nafs al-amara, and the soul that is at peace, the nafs al-mutma'inna. We are in that phase, the jihad al-akbar is going on. We're fighting against our bad selves, our bad instincts, our vices. We are the nafs al-mutma'inna. God swears by the importance of this. I swear by the day of resurrection 
Nay, I swear by the soul that's accusing itself. And then it goes on a few verses later in that surah. It says, uh, that on that day of resurrection, man will be told everything of what he has done and what he has left undone. But no, man is actually, he is aware of himself. He has basira in relation to his own self. He has objectivity. He actually has basira in relation. He has insight into what he's doing and what he's left undone, what he should have done, and so on and so forth. We have no excuse, spiritually speaking. It's just that we have these psychological strategies and pretexts and camouflages that pretend, oh, no, well, I, 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 I was badly treated. I done. No, we all know what we're doing wrong, what we're doing right. We just can't confess it to him. We can't acknowledge it properly. Even if he puts forward his excuses. So anyway, going back to your question, um, uh, Dr. Links has spoken about these pre-human aspects of creation only in order to emphasize that man is created at the end of the process of creation in order to be a quintessential summary of all of the pre-existing elements, those elements that pre-existed the creation of Adam. And then he is the sum of creation, incorporating everything that began with, you know, the, the minerals or the gases or whatever it was that, that the creation began with. It's normally given as a cloud and then the gas, and then water and then minerals and so on and so forth. But these are different cosmological schemas that um, are all there in order to be uh, a kind of um, spiritual basis for our ascent back through in our return to God, we give up that element of our being which corresponds to an earlier stage of creation. And this is actually given very, very well by Ibn Arabi in one of his accounts of his Mi'raj, his ascension. And he emphasizes that what I experienced inwardly and spiritually is what the Prophet experienced outwardly and bodily. So that the prophet's ascent through the heavens was a kind of macrocosmic physical one where each element of his being was reabsorbed into a more and more subtle form, such as to enter into the higher realms and that physically um, uh, this, this all was a kind of physical trans, transformation, transfiguration, that's the word I'm looking for, such as we see with Sayyidina Isa, the transfiguration of Tabor, when his disciples see him with Elijah and Moses um, and he's transfigured into light, his body becomes transfigured into a body of light. Ibn Arabi says this is akin to what happened to the prophet in his Mi'raj and what I experienced is a kind of microcosmic spiritual form of that in my ascent and I met the prophets in the different heavens but it was all within my own heart. So Ibn Arabi says that as I went through the different realms, uh, I, my, the, the mineral part of me was taken in the mineral domain within myself. Then the vegetative part was taken from that state. Then the animal part was taken in that domain. And finally, there was the, I can't remember how he finishes it, something like, Hasbi, Hasbi, Qadmala at Arkani. I've had enough, I've had enough. My elements can't contain me. Uh, they're, they're overfilled. My place can't contain me. I've had, you know, I, where can I go now? It's that, that state that Rumi's talking about, that when you die from your humanity, you enter the angelic domain. And when you die from the angels, where do you go next? It's just unbelievable, indescribable, ineffable. And, and then he says at the end of his Mi'raj, I saw all of the names returning to one object named Musamma Wahid. And I saw all of the A'yan, the essential archetypes, entities, identities of things, uh, return to one Ain, Ain Wahida. And that Ain Wahida was my being, was my wujud, Kana Dalik. Kanat, um, I forget how it goes now. 
كان ذلك العين وجودي وذلك المسمى شهودي so the, that all of those ayyan thabita all of those immutable possibilities archetypes entities they all go back to one ain and that ain was my wujud my being and all of the names go back to one object name and that was the object of witnessing shuhud what i witnessed the one thing named so uh, this is you know all of these ideas really are intended to galvanize our, our spiritual aspiration and to generate our our um our talab anew inshallah so um uh can we uh it's 10 35 i think we should stop there shouldn't we yes yeah all right very good so we'll meet in in two weeks time through this zoom and look forward yeah. to seeing you all then